0: Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Cooper Hodges, PhD. That's right. That doesn't stand for poor, hungry, and distressed. It stands for he got his doctorate, people. Uh, He earned a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from Andrews University In 2016, and a doctorate in cognitive and behavioral neuroscience from Brigham Young University in 2020. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Virginia Commonwealth University in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehab. Cooper's research interests primarily involve the use of imaging techniques like MRI to investigate traumatic brain injury in military veterans and how injuries may affect brain structure and psychological functioning welcome to the podcast cooper hodges
1: hey thanks for having me i appreciate it
0: i appreciate you being here man i want to start off with with a question it's random but what got you out of bed this morning cooper hodges
1: (laughs) Uh, mostly this podcast to be honest um i i am kind of tapering off of one job and moving into another so uh, this is the the most important thing I got today.
0: Oh, I love that. Did you hear that, people? It's this is important. This podcast. This dude has a PhD, so he would know what's important and what's not important. Um, <laughs> and, and so you're transitioning from one job to the next. I would imagine like there's a mix of feelings with that, right? Some excitement, some worry. What, what are you experiencing?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I'm I'm actually moving from academia over to uh, working at the, the VA hospital in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and so I'll still st- still be doing research there, but this will be my first time kind of working full time in a, a military setting. Um, so so it's it's exciting. It's also kind of nerve wracking, you know, as every job changes. But um, yeah, I'm I, I'm really excited to continue my work there how do you how do
0: you deal with nerve-wrecking feelings
1: that's a that's an interesting question um i think that i'm i'm the type of person that kind of relies on on other people um you know i have a really supportive uh, fiance and i have a close uh, research network of both friends and colleagues and so you know if i encounter something i'm i'm not sure how to do i have people i can reach out to and and really that's kind of what got me through grad school too, to be honest.
0: Is that reaching out to your fiance friends in your network?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did my PhD out in, in Utah, at uh, BYU. And, uh, for some of your listeners, I'm sure they're aware that BYU is actually a Mormon school. Um, and I am not Mormon. And so that was kind of my first time, uh, being, you know, sort of a, a religious minority and, you know, I I had no idea what was going on when I first got there, and it was kind of kind of had to reorient myself, and I I definitely had to rely on on other people, my fiance and and you know my friends and and family and and network to to get me through that, and and I've I found a lot of um, support doing the that same thing as I'm sort of moving uh, on with my career.
0: What does it sound like when you reach out for help, Cooper? And I'm asking this because we hear here often, you know, call for help, call the 1-800-SUICIDE hotline, call a friend, reach out. And we also know that when we're in moments of despair, we feel like we're in some type of nerve wracking experience that the phone just feels too heavy and we, we don't want to be a burden to others and we, we don't want to come off like we're complaining and we want to isolate and withdraw what what do you say to what do you say to your fiance because especially as a man it's like we got to be tough uh we can't be seen as vulnerable and here you are saying it was the vulnerability and the sharing that got you through grad school that got you through your experiences at byu uh, what what does that sound like
1: uh yeah so that that's a actually really good question um i i had struggled with this actually pretty significantly in my f- past i, I kind of had to learn um, through some experiences in like high school and, and early undergrad on kind of getting comfortable with vulnerability um i was definitely raised in sort of a macho environment you know i i grew up in uh, southern louisiana and and so you know deep south definitely that that sort of macho vibe where you're not supposed to talk about feelings and that sort of thing. And and so when I started struggling with depression, it it was tough because, uh, you know, my mom had had dealt with it before, but um, my dad's side of the family had never really had anything with mental health. And and so it was kind of hard for him to understand. And so um, as I sort of moved through therapy and, and started uh, working on my own uh, mental health journey i kind of had to to realize that yeah sometimes vul- vulnerability is is uncomfortable but also it's it's really vital for getting through these sort of downtimes so just to circle back to your your original question what does that look like um i have a really co- close friend we've been uh, best friends since freshman year of high school um, and she is one of the the few people that i i know that really gets the the depression journey you know she's she struggled with it too and so uh we we kind of have a accountability system where we we know that yeah it's hard to reach out and we don't want to feel like a burden but we've we've told each other so many times over the years that you know this isn't a burden and we want to know if each other's struggling that you know we've we've gotten a lot more comfortable with that and so I think I'd say to, to someone who is trying to, to figure out how to reach out and, and how to let people know that they're struggling. I mean, um, you don't have to tell them right away saying, hey, you know, like I'm, I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts. Like you can tell them, hey, I'm just having a tough time. Can we go for a drink? And, you know, like, or can we go get a cup of coffee or, you know, whatever sort of helps you get, get out of that mindset. Um, I think that that's a, a really important step, and and what we know from psychology actually is that uh, incremental steps are are the easiest to to achieve. So like when you're trying to lose weight, you know you don't want to go cold turkey on on soda right away. You you kind of want to make these incremental changes, and and I'd really argue that that sort of thing can also apply to uh, mental health, where you know if you're not comfortable seeking health help. Uh, right away, you know, make those incremental steps, reach out to friends, reach out to family, maybe say, Hey, you know, can we hang out? Like, you know, I've been cooped up or whatever, and, and maybe, uh, whatever you're comfortable with, just keep moving yourself forward until you get to a place where you're, you're comfortable letting people know, Hey, I'm struggling. Hey, you know, I need help finding therapy or resources or, or what have you. I
0: love that idea of keep moving forward until you get there slowly incrementally uh compound interest it compounds over time uh the more you ask for help uh the the easier it becomes right um but, but we have to make those those first steps and pick up the call i love that you had an accountability partner usually when you hear about accountability partners you hear about it in weight loss or you know uh people trying to overcome a thing but but you kind of had that that insight that foresight early on to like have an accountability partner. Is that something from your childhood that you had? Because you talked about your mom, you know, having a, a history of struggling with depression, but not your dad. So w- w- were there periods of loneliness in your childhood, and then as something you started to develop as you got older?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I I think I s- sort of started noticing that that maybe I was a little different um you know then then my my friends uh probably like in fifth or sixth grade you know my mom kind of noticed back then um uh, sort of her her early symptoms mirrored in me and so back in like sixth grade ish, um, that was the first time I went to a counselor and I, I didn't get on medication then, but, you know, I, I started infrequently going to therapy and, um, I think a lot of that. So I, I had some, some, uh, close family members die back then. And, you know, I'd, I'd switched from a private to a public school and had a lot of bullying and, and that sort of thing. And so it was just a lot all at once. Um, and, and so I definitely feel like that was kind of the first time I noticed it. Uh, and then when I got to high school, you, you know, my, my parents wanted me to get, uh, get out of that environment. And so they, they moved us across the country to Michigan, um, to, to get to better schools and have more. Uh, opportunities. And so, uh, when I got there, you, you know, it was definitely better, but, um, my senior year of high school, my, my grandfather committed suicide and that, that was what set me back for quite a long time. And basically since then, I've, I've been on some form of, uh, antidepressant and, and going to therapy and, you know, um, my, my friend, who's the accountability partner, like we we met in, uh, in, in high school before all this happened. And then, uh, so I, I'd say that, you know, we have been there for each other before and during and after, you know, these major sort of crises in each other's lives. And, and what we kind of figure out on our own is that, you know, having someone you're accountable to for taking your meds every day and making that therapy appointment. I mean, it really helps um, because, you know, if, if you're with a a, a romantic partner, or, you know, if you're in a friend group who, who hasn't really struggled with mental health, it can, there can be kind of a stigma around it. And so if you can identify even one or two people who've maybe had a similar journey to you, um, I found that just having someone accountable, checking in on me saying, Hey, you know, are you back on those meds? Are you going to therapy? Like, how are you feeling? Um, And, and knowing that that's a person that you can be honest with, I mean, it, it really has made a huge difference for me.
0: Yeah, it's it's about knowing that you have a space where you can trust that what you share uh, will stay within that space, and and also that uh, what you share will be handled with compassion and kindness.
1: Yeah, for sure, and and just um, I, I I think having someone who's who's been there consistently, you know, over time, who you know that you can tell, kind of these these. Uh, dark thoughts to saying, hey you know I'm struggling with late like, suicide ideation or thoughts or you know whatever like they're they're not going to call the cops on you and and you know have you institutionalized there there's someone who's going to be there to listen and say, hey you know, Uh, I I understand that I've been there but maybe like you should reach out and you know talk to someone talk to a therapist talk to your doctor you know and so just just having someone you can sort of trust with the weight of that I think was the biggest thing for me Um, you know I don't talk about my my mental health struggles with all my friends uh, just just you know a slight few that have been there and kind of get it and so um one one way that i'd actually suggest maybe some of your listeners uh finding these groups so there's some some really excellent groups on reddit um for suicide prevention and and depression um and they they really have helped me um you know it's a anonymous forum where you can just kind of post your thoughts and and uh, see that you're not the only one struggling with this, Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of support groups out there, uh, on and off Reddit that, that you can turn to in a public or anonymous fashion and, you know, talk to someone. Um, and I, I think that might be a good way to to go about it. If, uh, say someone doesn't have that, that friend that they can turn to is who has been in a similar situation. Um, that, that really helped me too.
0: So, you know, I, I love that it sounds like you've taken a multi-pronged approach to your mental health, uh, where you're reaching out to your fiance, to your friends, your colleagues, you have an accountability partner, and you're even going online You're using the technology uh, and not just going online, but you're going online and seeking out groups and other uh, people who are uh, in the same place that you are emotionally or who have been through what you've been through and you found solace and uh reddit groups and these are the reddit groups are free online right
1: right right they're totally free you just make an account you can put whatever username you want you don't even have to use an uh an email to sign up um and then you just uh sort of stumble into those groups uh and you can uh read posts there or you can comment or you know you can post your own post whatever you want it's it's a really great anonymous forum so
0: when you're in that space, and 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 you, there were times where you were thinking about ending your life and thinking about suicide. What is it when you look back that you really wanted?
1: Um, I I think or that, needed. Yeah, yeah. I think that I was I was maybe wanting like that social support and wasn't getting it. You know, most of my 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 thoughts were were happening like in in middle school, early high school, where I I didn't really have that support system established. And I mean, all of my peers around me were were you know twelve and thirteen. Like you know, someone of that age can't can't really they they don't have the uh, capacity to to help. And so you know, I think I was I was sort of struggling with that that social support. I'm I'm a very social person. You know, I kind of feel recharged like going out uh, and, and being with family or friends. And, and so, you know, I, I really felt that I was sort of alone in that. Um, I, I didn't have a whole lot of friends back then. And, you know, um, it was, it was kind of just me and my family. And so, um, I, I think I was really wanting that social support, but, but also I kind of just wanted someone to acknowledge that, okay, Hey, yeah, things have kind of been shitty for you, you know, um, because, like my my dad, he's he's incredibly supportive uh, now, but he he kind of struggled to understand it back then, and um, and so I think that may have kind of played a role too. Is like you know I tried to talk about it, and you know I got kind of a negative response about it, and so I I just wanted uh, or I just kind of decided to to not talk about it, um, and I think when you don't talk about it, that's that's where it really gets bad. Uh, because you internalize all those feelings, and and really, as as humans, like the the number one way we sort of deal with these negative emotions and negative experiences is by talking about it. That that's how we work. Uh, it's not just a, a guy or a girl thing. It's it's a human thing. Um, and so internalizing all of those sort of negative thoughts and emotions about myself, it, it sort of culminated in that that suicidal thought. Um, and as i'm sure some people uh, are aware you know i i think that uh suicidal thoughts um at the end of the day they're they're almost an altruistic thing right you you sort of start thinking oh man i'm so messed up like everybody around me would be better off right Uh, um you know i'm such a burden to everyone around me and so uh without that social support i think that that you know you start internalizing it and then it kind of moves from there and so if if you can reach out to anyone uh the internet is a a great forum you know for for people who may not have that social network i've met tons of of uh, friends online i mean um my my fiance and i actually met through the internet um years back and so you know i i th- I think it has a lot of potential for bringing people together who may be isolated and and sort of getting them away from that, that negative mindset.
0: I I love that idea. First of all, that you met your fiance online. What what love can be found (laughs) anywhere. Right. Um, And, but, but two. what I really love that I heard you say is that all you really wanted to hear was that, things have been kind of shitty for you. Yeah. Right. It's so simple.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that um, maybe that's, that's some things that uh, guys and with similar backgrounds uh, may, may sort of resonate with, right. Like we're, we're sort of told like, okay, you know, uh, man up, deal with it but really at the end of the day i think i think everyone wants validation like saying okay yeah this isn't a normal thing that you went through um this sucks and just just sort of giving that validation saying hey this isn't normal like you've had a really tough time i think is is really helpful it it really helped me like that's that's one of the things my therapist said was you know like i'm sorry you went through that and it's like oh okay that's that's really validating to know that You know, this isn't something everybody deals with. And I just suck at dealing with it. You know, it was a really terrible situation.
0: Oh, I I definitely Cooper. I I want you to dig a little deeper into that because that's a fascinating thing. I haven't really thought about before um, in that when we're in those moments of despair, we think that everybody else has been through this and they have just, you know, brushed the, the dirt off their shoulders. And have moved on, and, um, and and typically, what I've heard people say is that I feel like I'm the only one going through this. But I love that your your thinking kind of was like, wow, how can every how is everybody else handling the loss uh, of a, a grandparent to suicide and being bullied and you know all the other things that you you went through, um, and and seem to be all smiles and cheers. Can you t- talk to me a little bit more about that?
1: yeah um I, I think that uh sort of suffering and and maybe like maybe maybe that's not the best term but but sort of uh struggling through life has I, I, at least in my uh, it's experience and background been been almost normalized as like okay you know life sucks deal with it um i think that that's sort of a a macho Southern thing. Right. Like um, lots of my, my family, you know, they went to war uh, and and they, they saw horrible things and they had to do things and, you know, they came back home and they struggled. And, and so, you know, like, I, I think there was just sort of this ingrained belief and, and like my grandparents and, and just in, in the family, the extended family in general that, okay, like life sucks. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta man up and get through it. Um, and so I think that that was maybe something that, um, I was trying to figure out when I was younger was like, okay, is everyone dealing with, you, you know, the, the bullying and the abuse and, you, you know, all of that, uh, from their peers. I'm like, is it just me? Um, like, I, I feel like at least in, in my childhood, you know, a lot of, a lot of people around me, like. Aunts and uncles, they would say, "Man, I'm I'm really sorry you're struggling in school. I dealt with it too. I'm fine. You just got to man up and get through it." And so, you know, I'd say, and in, in some circles, it's actually pretty prevalent. Like um, one one aspect I've seen this a lot in is uh, in academia, actually. So uh in a lot of academic circles there's there's sort of this normalization of suffering (laughs) like everybody's like okay grad school is going to be the the hardest worst experience of your life it was like that for me so you know you got to struggle through too um and so i think that i sort of had to grapple with that again not just in my childhood but in my education you know where i I was like man does does grad school suck this much for everybody or is it just me um and so for a while there i was like man you know maybe it's just like a personal failing that that i'm not meant to to be in academia i'm not meant to to get through grad school because you know this is a meat grinder like it's terrible um but i think that a lot of that that Environment sort of gets normalized um, because you know if if you went through it you figure okay if I made it through then my future students should make it through too but really I think what we ought to be focusing on is maybe making it suck less for the people who come after us right um, and so that's that's something I've had to struggle with a couple of times uh, it's it's definitely so uh, I it definitely uh, turns the the um, typical viewpoint of, of depression. It's only me on its head. Right. Um, but I think it, it's actually pretty common in a lot of places.
0: So true. It's so, I I mean, all I hear is embrace the suck, uh, you know, grind it out. Um, you'll, or, or the, uh, the, the belief that after this, on the other side, you'll be so grateful and so happy that, uh, that you just put your head down and went through it and um, it, it really is like not validating as we talked about earlier, what I'm feeling right now. Like I, I, I may not make it to the other side if we can't address the wounds. It, I mean, like if you had a physical wound, if you're on a hike and you broke your leg on a hike, nobody's gonna be like, well, when you get to the end of the hike, you're gonna feel so much better. It's like, right. no, we're gonna well, check on you right now.
1: <laughs> Well, and, and to go back to the, the grad school thing, so uh, one thing a lot of people don't know is that uh, grad students, uh, both uh, like master's and PhD level students, uh, they experience uh, depression, anxiety, mental health problems at like two and a half times the rate that the uh, rest of the population does. And Uh, just when I was in grad school, we had like three or four students commit suicide while I was there in four years. And if you're having a suicide a year, uh, you you know, maybe there's a problem. (laughs) Maybe there's something that we can do as an institution to, to address this. And I feel like a lot that there's been a lot of failing, um, at the institutional level, to to address this problem, right? Like, um, one one thing that that was hard for me in grad school was, you know, just finding help because uh, the the attitude of the Mormon Church is that you know if you uh, are struggling with mental health problems, it's because you aren't faithful enough, and so. Uh, that, that was something I struggled with as a, as a non-Mormon guy at BYU. You know, I, I met lots of great people there, but, but mental health wise, I mean, we were in the psychology department and we never talked about mental health, uh, like how to, to maintain your mental health during grad school. We never talked about that kind of thing. And so I think that it, this is just one example, but I think there's lots of, of institutions that maybe we can start focusing on to, it, is like you know, people go through uh, education, they go through healthcare, they go through all of these different systems, right? And and there's so many places where we can sort of check on people and and make sure that they're doing okay and give them the the mental health resources that they need. But uh, a lot of times we just fail to do it, and so I think that that really addressing this problem at, at an institutional level and giving people the resources they need would, would really go a long way to, to helping uh, reduce uh, the, the suicide problem in the United States.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you, you brought up something about enough. It's like, if you're not this, then it probably means you're not enough that like if you're not right. a successful professor, then that means you didn't study enough and you're not publishing enough. If you're not a, if you're not rich, then that means you're not grinding hard enough. And it really creates this idea of I'm inadequate. Like I'm right. just not doing enough and I could never do enough. Can you say more to that?
1: Yeah, I I think that uh, grad school was, was definitely sort of the ringer in that aspect, right? Like, um, I guess for me... The, the biggest thing was the the imposter syndrome when I got there. So uh, if if you're not fami- familiar with that term, essentially it's, it's the idea that uh, you feel like you're an imposter, like you got to the place that you are because of a fluke. You know, you feel like uh, everybody's just waiting to find out that you don't belong where you are, that you don't deserve the opportunities you've been given. And when I got to grad school, I really had never heard of that. And I felt it, I mean, from day one, uh you know you're i'm, I'm walking into in this institution that i've heard about for years and and at the end of the the, the four years there uh i was going to get a phd i was going to be a doctor and i had I, I think there's there's sort of this cultural mythos around doctors whether it's academic or or physicians medical doctors and i think that there's this mythos around them that these people are so smart they're so like untouchable and i think that that that's sort of one of the underlying reasons why a lot of grad students feel imposter syndrome right they get to grad school and they're like oh wow i'm going to be a doctor uh if i just stick through this um, i don't feel ready for that you know i i thought doctors were supposed to be these sort of mythical people and and so um that's that's something that i struggle with uh quite a bit uh is feeling like i was enough feeling like i knew enough like i was making enough progress um and at the end of the day you know i graduated and i got a job and i've just had to learn okay if if i didn't know enough i wouldn't be getting these positions and i wouldn't you know have the opportunities i do um and i've just kind of had to rely on that but it, it it's definitely a problem man um feeling like you're enough like even outside of the the academic uh realm i think is is something a lot of people struggle with um and sort of living up to expectations i think is probably one of the the most common underlying uh problems with with depression, right, is like people feel like they're not living up to everybody else's expectations. But something I, I sort of had to learn was that sometimes you have to make expectations um, meet uh, what you feel comfortable with. So, you know, rather than me in grad school feeling pressured to, to publish every year and, and be top of the class and all that, you know, I had to set my own expectations for myself and say, Hey, okay, what would I be happy with if I accomplished this year? Um, and, and sort of reframing that, that issue into something more achievable, because I think, um, a lot of people who don't feel like they're enough have this, um, this idea that they should be so much better th- uh, than where they are now that it's just unachievable. I mean, you can't live up to those expectations. Nobody could, and and I think that that's that's probably one of the the most common um, uh, problems in depression that that uh, people need help with.
0: Oh yeah, because we see everybody killing it on social media. It, it looks oh, like for sure. it, right? I mean, I'm looking at The Rock, and the, and the dude has abs. He's a father. He's a provider. He's, you know, he's a megastar. Uh, he's charismatic. You look at a uh, like, guy like Will Smith. Um, they're just, you know, these, it seems like there's so many examples, but what we don't realize is that, the, you know, the planet has, like, 7 billion people, and we really can only name, like, three people who we can think of really killing it <laughs> in life. Right. If you really thought about it, like, you can count on, like, one hand, maybe two, Uh, depending on on who you're following and social media. But, you know, but especially like in school, there's a lot of like comparing yourself to other students in the classroom, comparing yourself to their grades, to how they look, um, you know, to to even, there's even now like an experiential comparison of, oh, you traveled to like five continents already. I've only been to Detroit. And so (laughs) there's like so many different ways that we're, you know, um, this, you know, capitalism and society is kind of setting us up, but even on our parents. And and so it, it, I don't know if this happened in your household, but did you feel like you had to compete with your parents or your siblings at all?
1: Uh, I actually had sort of the opposite experience where um, my my parents were always happy as long as uh, I was, you know, happy and and making progress um they they always felt like i was going to do something great and i think that that maybe um that that put some pressure on me but but really it wasn't it wasn't living up to them it was it was uh just trying to make them happy you know they they weren't um you know overbearing and they weren't you know unsupportive or anything but um that, that was something that I worried about quite a bit was like, am I making my parents proud? And, you know, at the end of the day, they were actually pretty great about, about telling me, Hey, we're proud of you, you know, no matter where you end up. Um, And I I think that that's one of the things that actually helped me quite a bit in my childhood um, was like, okay, my parents are proud. Like, you know, they feel like I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Let's just keep pushing through and, and see if I can make it
0: i want to backtrack a little bit cooper because you know earlier you were talking about imposter syndrome and so many of us do struggle with that i recognize like you know i got my master's and part of why i didn't go on to get my phd is because i was like there's no way i'm gonna be ready to like open up a practice and, and be a, a doctor uh right. in four years you know and i was just like yeah I'm, I'm like still eating ramen noodles uh <laughs> Out of a out of a a shoebox, you know what I'm saying? Like it, I was like, no, no, it's gonna take more than four years to get this together. Um, But you you know, one thing that I love that you mentioned is how you challenged your thoughts, because a lot of times we have thoughts, whether it's about ending our lives or about um, you know, uh, or shaming ourselves or or or, you know, just berating ourselves in some type of way, and we don't challenge. The thoughts can you talk to us more about the importance in how to challenge our thoughts
1: yeah um one of the, the that's actually one of the the most important things i think i learned from therapy um and and this is what really one of the strengths of therapy um if if maybe one of your listeners isn't aware like therapy is is about sort of identifying problematic behaviors and problematic thoughts and teaching you ways of dealing with those and so uh, one of the the first things that my therapist uh, told me uh, was she wanted me to just take a mental note of of the times per day that i was uh sort of talking bad about myself like feeling down on myself like saying i'm not good enough you know that negative self-talk right um and it was uh, once i started paying attention to it it was it was really problematic i mean it was happening you know a couple of times an hour and uh one of the things that i've really had to work on is just identifying when that happens and stopping myself and saying okay that's not true let's not do this you know i'm i'm good enough i'm I'm in a job where I'm productive, and you know my boss is happy. Like I, and and sort of um, maybe providing the counter narrative to to those negative thoughts, right? Like if you're saying I'm not good enough, uh, think about all the the things that prove that that's not true, right? Like you're with uh, if you have a partner, you're with someone who who loves you and thinks you are good enough. Um, If you're in a job, you know, obviously your employer. Thinks that you're good enough. Um, so, sort of providing and thinking about that that counter narrative to those negative thoughts has really helped me, um, because I, I think that self talk is something that we don't really uh, talk about a lot in society. And and once I sort of started to identify those instances of that happening, I mean it It really made me aware of how much I was doing it, and just sort of focusing on uh, giving myself some room to breathe, I think um, was really one of the biggest steps in in my mental health journey.
0: I love that. How to give yourself room to breathe. besides challenging your thoughts, uh, you, you know, uh, well, first, before we get into giving yourself room to breathe, it sounds like the first step was awareness of being, I think, because a lot of times, I think we underestimate how often that voice is so negative and berating and, uh, and shaming of ourselves. And so, like you said, you were surprised at how frequently, and not, and not just by the frequency, but by what you were saying to yourself. After we right. become aware, what, what's the next step
1: So, so this is where therapy is helpful. And, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm a research psychologist. So, you know, I don't want to tell people that this is what you do to, to, to fix this, but at least in my own journey, um, I think that once I became aware of that, I started, um, trying to think about my positive aspects. So, uh, one thing that my therapist had me do was uh download this app. It's called Three Good Things. And uh at the end of the day, it'll send you a reminder. You just uh type in three good things that happened today. Um and it it may seem a little juvenile, but um actually just trying to to come up with those like really highlighted for me the negative mindset I was in. I mean I the the first few weeks I was doing this, I could not for the life of me think of three good things. You know, if I could only come up with one or two, I settled for that. But uh, eventually, once you start focusing on, you know, the positive things that are happening and and providing that sort of counter, counter narrative to, to that negative self-talk, you know, identifying your good qualities, identifying what um, about yourself that you're happy with, what about yourself that you're proud about. Uh, sort of focusing and reframing that negative self-thought into something more productive was, was what really uh, helped me get out of it. Um, You know, trying to, to stop my, my self-talk, my negative self-talk when I noticed it was happening and then refocusing it into something more positive uh, was, was really uh, impactful for me.
0: I love that, that idea. So we're talking about how to challenge your thoughts, uh, you know, uh, finding awareness and then also, you know, being aware of how often you do it by writing it down, um, and making note and then, um, you know, writing down three good things so that you can kind of, uh, recognize Like, so, Cause the depressive brain, the research shows that we have a, a poor memory for the positives and the wins of our day, but we have a great memory for that one little remark that someone said uh, that right. rubbed us the wrong way or, you know, the, the, the guy who cut us off in traffic um, or whatever. So I, I love that. And, and also appreciate you mentioning, you know, you're not a clinical therapist or psychologist. You're you're more research based. Um, and, and so this is you're speaking from your experience. Is This is yeah, thing. Sure. So I, I appreciate you highlighting that. Um, and, you know, the, the other part that you were talking about was uh, how to give yourself room to breathe. And can you highlight what that means? Because I know, especially with depression, it feels like this heavy, wet steel blanket, and right. like you're suffocating. So besides challenging your thoughts, how else do you give yourself room to breathe, Cooper?
1: yeah so I, I think that when I was really deep in my depression, one thing that that really got me was like if I I failed to make social obligations or you know, if I failed to do the chores or you know whatever. and um, uh, when I was pretty deep into it, like just the thought of getting out of bed and going to do do the dishes, was just unimaginable i mean i did not want to do it and that was that was uh one thing that i i sort of beat myself up about was like you know i'm such a piece of crap i can't even get out of bed and and do simple housework um and i think that the thing that that sort of helped me about it is like okay you know today I'm just going to take a mental health day. Like it's okay to leave the dishes in the sink for a day. It's okay to like have dirty laundry in the hamper. Like, you know, and, and, and so sort of coming up again, circling back to the thing I talked about earlier about incremental change. You know, if you, if you can't uh, bear to, to do the laundry, then, you know, focus on picking it up off the floor and putting it in the hamper, you know, you can do that later, make those incremental changes that, that, you know, you feel that you can handle and then go from there. Right. Like um, the, the standards that, that some people hold themselves to just won't be right for you. And so, you know, um, realizing that, Hey, I'm struggling, like, like maybe, you know, these standards that I'm holding for myself aren't appropriate right now. What's a halfway point that I can get to, Um, and and that's sort of what I meant by by giving yourself room to breathe. It's like you know, if you're if you're beating yourself up because you can't uh, do something that you set out to do, then then maybe focus on getting halfway to that goal rather than all the way, right? Um, And and recognize that okay, you know, I I felt like absolute crap today. But I did this one thing, you know, and if the one thing is putting the dishes in the dishwasher, if it's loading the, the clothes into the dryer, you know, whatever, uh, you know, I, I think that um, focusing on that and focusing on those incremental goals is, is what sort of helps. And, and identifying those goals that you feel like you aren't uh, meeting up to and maybe coming up with some, some alternative goals, um, I think that, that that's also super helpful.
0: I love it. And then before we get into your research involving, um, you know, uh, MRIs and and veterans dealing with traumatic brain injury, is there any other part of your personal journey uh, that we that you'd like to share in terms of how you've dealt with your your mental health issues or life experiences or, you know, imposter syndrome?
1: (laughs) Um, I, I think that maybe the biggest thing, the, the biggest realization I came to was that uh, mental health is a journey. You know, you won't fix yourself uh, the, the way you're feeling in a day, you know, um, it, you may not even fix yourself in a year, but recognizing that, okay, I'm, I'm on this path to, to try and get better to try and feel better about myself, uh, to to try and, and get out of this, you know, as as long as you're making progress on that path, like you're you're doing fine. I mean, uh, the the goals someone sets for their mental health journey won't won't be the same as the ones that are appropriate for you. And so, uh, something that that really helped me was going to a therapist and identifying, you know, goals, reasonable goals that I could work towards and feel good about um and i would just you know really encourage people to to consider that as they move forward
0: i, I love that and so first of all congratulate i said first of all like we just started talking <laughs> but um but uh, you know to switch gears a little bit congratulations on your new job at the va hospital in uh, dc uh, i mean that's going to be a cultural change and uh, weather change and, and, and so many different changes what drew you to this this type of research working with veterans and specifically traumatic brain injury uh,
1: yeah so I actually went to grad school specifically to, to do what I'm doing now um, so when I was in an undergrad I, I sort of was introduced by uh, or introduced to this topic by my professors and um, I had taken a class that was talking about MRI research and they encouraged me to look into something that interested me, so I I found this whole area of research where uh, people were trying to to quantify and understand the the brain injuries that they were seeing in, in military veterans and uh you know that that caused me to ask my own family uh so many of my aunts and uncles my my dad grandparents really most of the male members of my family have served uh the military in in some capacity and so uh asking them about their experiences and and sort of understanding that there was a huge need for research in this area was what uh got me into it and and so i'm I feel really lucky to to be moving into the, the place finally that uh, I worked, you know, for the better part of a decade. To be um, and at the VA there, I'll be working on maybe some treatments that we can use to to treat uh, symptoms of uh, brain injury in the military. But um, one of the the statistics I ca- came across that really sort of jarred me in my um, in my own research uh between 2011 or, or sorry 2000 and 2012 there were 450,000 veterans uh who sustained a brain injury um and that's from the the department of defense and um it's it's a really pervasive issue and, and a significant portion of those vets also reported some sort of uh mental health uh disorder as well and so sort of coming cr- across those numbers early in my education was what really spurred me on to, to get to where I am now.
0: So before we go deeper into this, let's backtrack and And can you def- define for us, you know, your working definition of a brain injury? Um, and and sure. then also if we can talk about the differences between acute and chronic
1: Okay, sure. Yeah. So a a brain injury is um, a type of injury that results after a blow to the head. So the most common areas we see this uh, are in actually uh, young children and uh, the elderly. So uh the the most common place that we see brain injuries are in those two groups because of falling um just falling and hitting their head gives them a a mild brain injury so as far as uh severity there's there's a number of different ways we diagnose this but um one of the most common ways is to to use some uh, objective measures uh where they will rate you know are uh, is this individual conscious are they responsive you know do they have uh, motor control issues are they walking okay you know that that sort of thing and and uh, rating them based on uh, objective uh, uh, body measures. and so uh, we we generally separate, uh, brain injuries into mild, moderate, and severe. Uh, the vast majority, something like 90% of brain injuries are mild, and people, most people recover from those uh, just fine uh, with no lasting symptoms. Uh, mild or, or uh, sorry, moderate and severe brain injuries, uh, those are the ones that that cause the sort of lifetime problems and, and the issues that we see uh, over over a, a, a long time. And so, um. We also categorize brain injuries into acute and chronic phases. So, acute phase would be just right after injury, you know, the the weeks and months, days after injury, and the effects that y- you may see there. So, some individuals, uh, after their brain injury, they may have uh, what's called post-traumatic amnesia. That's where they uh, have memory loss post injury. It can last from thirty minutes to, you know, an hour or a few days. Um, we we see all sorts of, of symptoms, but really that's uh, the the acute phase is where in you know mild, moderate, and severe most of your symptoms will will appear. In the chronic phase, this is uh, more months to years post injury. Uh, and more severe types of brain injury, like moderate and severe, uh, this is where we see the lasting symptoms. Uh, most mild injuries don't don't last into the chronic phase. They they usually resolve within a few months, 90 days or so. Um, but that that's sort of a broad overview of how how we um, identify and and uh, classify brain injury.
0: So, I, I love that you said children and elderly, uh, we see traumatic brain injury, or at least brain injury, uh, mostly in those two populations due to falling. So, I would imagine then if it's mostly children that are experiencing uh, brain injury, uh, I, I know you said also the elderly, but then if that child goes into war, which you know is doubling, tripling, quadrupling down... On the type of impact that their their head is suffering, um, it, it's what do we see from that?
1: Yeah, so actually, this is this is uh, sort of a um, an area where we have identified some some long lasting public misconceptions around the issue. So uh, one thing that a lot of people uh, thought uh, back in the day was that if you were a kid. Or if you were someone getting a brain injury, it was best to get it because uh, when you were a kid, because that would give you time to recover and, you know, be okay uh, for the rest of your life. So it was commonly thought, uh, you know, a few uh, decades ago that uh, if you were... Uh, getting a brain injury, the earlier, the better. Um, however, what we've learned, uh, since then is that actually the earlier, uh, you sustain a brain injury, the longer the symptoms last, uh, throughout your life. So what we see is, is kids with moderate and severe injuries, not, not so much for mild, but, but definitely for moderate and severe injuries, we see that, um, you know, the, the more severe the injury and the younger they are, the the longer uh, these symptoms last um, and and that could be memory problems, attention problems, um, balance gait problems, you know, stuff like that. Um, but but actually, when it ties into the military, that's that's uh, a really interesting new area of research. Um, so there was this uh, study. Uh, that came out in 2018. It, it looked at 39,000 military veterans, and it found that 60% of those those vets um, had at least one adverse uh, childhood experience. And a lot of those experiences are sort of domestic abuse, where a child may sustain a brain injury. Um, And they found that that these adverse childhood experiences were actually significantly associated with um, increased risk of uh, mental health problems and later incarceration. Um, And so we really do see that that childhood experiences um, can play into sort of the mental health um, and behavioral problems and, you know, all of the the different uh, facets of uh, uh, military health Um, and so. One thing that we've been trying to to push in the field is, you know, greater awareness among parents and and athletic coaches and physicians about um, the dangers of, of brain injury as uh, as a child.
0: So, if you could wave a magic wand in terms of the treatment of our our veterans with traumatic brain injury, uh, what would you? What would be the one thing you would add or subtract?
1: Yeah, uh <laughs> that's actually a really tough question. Um, it is.
0: I I know. I know. That's not So
1: that. man, honestly, I I don't think that there's one individual thing that that I could identify that, you know, subtracting would help them or or adding this would help them. Um one of the things that has emerged from military research is that there are so many factors that play into to military health so childhood experiences um uh mental health uh factors so if they have pre-existing conditions like uh depression anxiety you know that kind of thing that can play a role uh health uh just general physical health can play a role um health history so thing have they uh, been a, a smoker have they uh, been you know heavily using alcohol that sort of thing that can play a role i mean there there are so many different things that play into uh, the outcomes from um, from brain injury in the military that it's really hard to identify one specific thing that that would would help them um i think maybe though that I don't know if this answers your question, but maybe one thing that I, I would change would be um, the rules in the military around uh, reporting th- these things. So so one thing that we see is that um, mental health problems, substance abuse um uh, brain injuries, uh, really, really any serious health problems are very underreported in active du- duty military because they are fearful of retaliation. So whether that's, you know, personal or uh, they're they're worried about, OK, if I report that I have pre-existing depression, are they going to to force me out of the military? Um, you know, is that going to affect my career? Uh, that's that's one of the issues uh, with uh, domestic violence and and intimate partner violence in the military, actually, is that um, a lot of women just don't report sexual assault um, and violence because they're they're afraid of re- retaliation. So maybe maybe the thing I would change would be. Um, sort of the the rules and guidelines around uh reporting these and and ensuring that you know if you have a pre-existing condition or a brain injury or something you know you won't be retaliated against for that or you know they'll find some role that that fits you better
0: yeah the the repercussions of of sharing of like is this going to go on my record is this going to prevent me from being promoted is this going to affect my pay my family all those things are considered when uh you know people think about going for help and, and getting help and uh, and so I, I definitely would love to see that change we see that with the with the police department and just other like you know government entities but I, I, you know for in a lot of workspaces but i also f- i also feel like i you know i don't have the numbers but i feel like that culture's slowly changing like like the titanic hopefully it's, it's sooner right. than the titanic turned around but um
1: yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of that is probably due to public perceptions of these issues changing. So, you know, um as as we see uh, millennials and and Gen Xers and Gen Zs, uh, as we see these individuals getting older, we I mean, we've we've noticed that people want more accountability and they want, you know, people to to feel safe in their work environments and and you know, this is kind of what in my opinion is underlying the whole me too movement. Like we want safe spaces for women. Right. Um, And so I think that the tolerance for, for abuse and retaliation and and that sort of thing is, is dropping. And so fingers crossed, maybe, you know, in the future, we'll see that also uh, come to the military.
0: I love that. And, and so, you know, we talked about what traumatic brain injury is and, and we also uh, can you share with us like some of the symptoms? Cause I think a lot of times people aren't aware that they have some type of traumatic brain injury. Cause once again, it goes back to just embracing the suck and I can get over this and I'll take sure. a couple of Tylenol or, you know, uh, I'll sleep it off.
1: Sure. So uh, in most cases we, we see some common symptoms in individuals with brain injury. So, the, the common screener questions we ask are, uh, have you ever hit your head and uh, lost consciousness? Have you had disorientation? Have you um, had a loss of memory, visual problems? Uh, that sort of thing. Those, those symptoms are the really common ones, but it can also manifest in other ways. So if you've maybe hit your head and, Uh, had nausea uh, you know you have chronic headaches you have that sort of thing that that can also uh, be indicative of uh, a brain injury and so um, we I I was actually part of a study uh, out at University of Utah where we were just recruiting um, normal healthy adults uh, because there's not really a good database of what normal adults look like um, especially you know diverse uh sort of representative samples of the country look like and so one thing that that we screened for was brain injury and so you know i i had this probably happen to me personally maybe 20 or 30 times where I would, I would be screening someone and I'd say, Hey, have you ever had a concussion or traumatic brain injury? And the person would say no. And then, you know, I would obviously follow up and say, okay, so you've never hit your head and lost consciousness. Maybe I had blurry vision, uh, loss of memory. A loss of consciousness disorientation and that they'd be like oh yeah actually i have uh had that you know i was in a car accident or you know whatever and so i think a lot of people don't realize maybe that they've had these concussions um and if you know you were experiencing symptoms for less than say 30 minutes. Um, that's generally considered a mild concussion, whereas longer lasting symptoms, hours or days, those are more severe and you you would be more likely to to have received treatment for that.
0: Wow. I I love it. I love that research. And what's beautiful about what you're doing is that we're still uncovering so much about traumatic brain injury because I'm sure, uh, and I I say I'm sure, I'm not sure, but I would assume nutrition and diet or or drugs and alcohol contribute to brain injury. So a lot of times I think when we think of it, we think about it coming from an external source like football, getting hit over the head, uh, explosions. Uh, Are are you looking into like nutritional or uh, other internal components uh, contributing to traumatic brain injury?
1: So, so the things I'm, I'm sort of uh, more familiar with are the substance abuse uh, situations. So what we see is um, actually in, in people who maybe um, abuse alcohol or other substances, uh, they are in situations where they're more likely to sustain a head injury, you know. Um, you have uh, obviously balance, uh, balance and uh, gait problems when you're drunk, and so you know that can contribute. And you know uh, uh, also in, in alcohol abuse, there's significant loss of memory, and so you know there there may be some issues there. But um, one of the the more interesting things is that um, you can actually see compounding effects on on brain tissue. So what I mean by that is we we generally uh, see uh, damage to brain tissue happen in a, a, a couple of different ways. But one of the most common ways that we see is, um, so, so the, the bulk of your brain is made up of what's called gray matter. Um, and these are just, uh, regular old neurons. And so, uh, we, we actually measure the volume of gray matter, um, in normal people and then compare it to people with brain injury. And we see that, okay, uh, you have less brain volume, um, when you have had a traumatic brain injury, uh, presumably because, you know, your brain tissue gets injured and those cells die off and, you know, there's some reorganization happening. Um, but what's interesting is that when you also, when you have had a history of brain injury, plus a history of substance abuse, whether that's uh, opioid or um, cannabis or alcohol or, you, you know, what have you, when you have a, a, a serious history of substance abuse, um, you actually see compounding effects and you have, Less gray matter than you would when you have both of those things. Uh, if you had just had a brain injury, um, and so those sort of lifestyle uh, um, health factors definitely play a role.
0: So in terms of treatment, I, I was reading where, like, I want to say in the nineteen forties or thirties or something like that, that the president at the time had, I want to say, it was maybe Hoover. Um, had he had a, a, a what seemed like a comprehensive uh treatment plan for military vets reintegrating back into society and it included things like exercise diet therapy and even the arts it was like music and and painting and things like that in terms of treatment what are we looking at here
1: yeah so so there's actually a, a pretty wide variety of treatments um one of the issues with with brain injury specifically, and especially in the military, is that uh, no two brain injuries are the same. So one thing that I, I think a lot of people don't realize is that uh, there are while, – while you and I have the same – uh brain structures so you know you have a a a thing called the cerebellum that helps you walk and move your arms and move your limbs and whatever and i also have that but ours will be significantly different from one another um because of individual factors and in addition to that Um, The internal structure of the skull can vary pretty significantly uh, between people. So, you know, you may have more rough spots on the interior of your skull than I do. And so if you get hit in the head, you know, those rough spots may be more likely to, to damage your brain tissue than it would in me, right? And so Uh, All of these individual differences uh, really play a significant role Um, and it it ends up making no two brain injuries are the same. And because no two brain injuries are the same, you can't really standardize treatment for everyone. You can't say, okay, this treatment will work for everyone with a brain injury like you can with, you know, say high cholesterol. Um, And so. Because of that, we have a lot of different um, therapeutic techniques that that people might uh, encounter. So. You know, the, uh, for for someone who may have some issues regulating their behavior, say, you know, they're they're having emotional outbursts after brain injury. You know, we have uh, certain types of talk therapy, uh, the the more traditional psychotherapy there, um, where you meet with a therapist and maybe you get on some medication to to help regulate your behavior. Um, but there's also some some new and emerging techniques. So, um, if you have had uh, maybe. a a more serious form of injury um or if you have a comorbid factor so if you have brain injury plus you know say ptsd um there are some treatments that are specifically designed for that so one of the ones we see for uh, ptsd plus brain injury um is actually this this form of exposure therapy called uh, virtual reality uh exposure therapy and this is used uh by researchers and clinicians to sort of um, replicate the environment in which someone was injured, and it it sort of desensitizes them to that experience, and that is what helps them with uh, the, the PTSD symptoms. Um, and then the, the movement and the coordination and all that can also help with the, the brain injury symptoms. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of sort of emerging therapies out there um, that, that people may run into. And I'd actually suggest uh, anyone who's interested in learning more about this, there's a really great organization called BrainLine. And they have a, a section of their website called the Treatment Hub. And there you can find a list of really common uh, treatments that people use for brain injury and PTSD, and it'll explain in common language what the treatment is, how it works, what the evidence for it is. And I think that that is a great way for for anyone who may be interested to to sort of get familiar with um, all the different techniques that are out there.
0: I love it. Uh Cooper, this has been extremely illuminating. And and I know you took a lot of notes. Is there anything that any stats you want to share, any stories you want to tell? Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be of value to our listeners?
1: Yeah. Um I, I think that that maybe uh one of the the more important areas of the research that i'm i'm sort of getting into is the link between uh military and uh, intimate partner violence related brain injury um, so what we see is that in in military populations there's actually a pretty significant rate of intimate partner violence this was formerly called domestic violence um, and one of the issues with intimate partner violence is that it's it's pretty understudied at this point. Uh, Really only within the past five, six, seven years or so has this area of research taken off. But but one of the the things that we've become aware of is that um, intimate partner violence actually carries a pretty significant risk for uh, brain injury, uh, in addition to other factors like PTSD and anxiety. Um, One of the things we're finding is that uh, women in uh, abusive relationships often... Uh, have experiences where their partner's hitting them in the head, or they're thrown against a wall where they hit their head, and that can cause uh, some undiagnosed brain injury. But also, we're finding that um, strangulation, so non-fatal strangulation, where maybe a partner puts his hands around your throat, that can cut off uh, oxygen uh, oxygen to your brain and actually cause uh, brain injuries as well. And what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, this is uh, so common um i am I'm, I'm just going to talk about a study here so there was a a study um, of 411 uh female veterans so this was in uh, 2017 uh in comprehensive psychiatry the journal and they found that 28 percent of those 411 women met uh, criteria for uh, intimate partner violence related brain injury um and 12% of those women met the criteria and had current symptoms. And after adjusting for race uh, income and uh, the number of times uh, they experienced uh, uh, violence in the past year, women with uh, intimate partner violence related TBI or brain injury were uh, six times as more likely to have uh, also meet criteria for PTSD than those without. And so uh, it's a really serious issue. There was another study that came out. um, And it studied uh, 171 women with a history of uh, intimate partner violence. And 91% of those women indicated uh, being hit in the head or strangled by their partner uh, at some point in time. And 31% of those women reported this happening more than six times in their life. Um, And only 35% of them reported uh receiving medical attention after being hit in the head or strangled um and so there there's a a severe lack of awareness um among both uh victims um and actually uh service providers so uh there was a study in 2018 uh that that reviewed uh, or surveyed uh 68 different uh, healthcare providers that that uh, provided for victims of intimate partner violence, and uh, they found that 84% of those agencies had no specific brain injury training, uh, and only 5% of of those agencies thought that a, a significant portion of their clients could even have a, a brain injury. Um, and so, I think we have a long way to go, but but one one of the drums i really like to be is that um you know this is this is a a issue you know women should be aware that that if they or someone they know uh is in a um violent relationship you know these are risk factors and this isn't only for women you know uh, uh some of these studies are also finding this in men uh it's just that you know women are more commonly uh in the the victims of these um violent relationships. And so, uh, there's a lot of crossover between, uh, intimate partner violence research and, and military research. And, uh, I just wanted to, to sort of talk about that and and make people aware that, that this is something that we're still finding more about, but, uh, if you're concerned, you should definitely reach out to, um, maybe your doctor or a therapist and, and bring, bring this up. Thank you so
0: much, Cooper, for, for illuminating us, uh, on, on that information and those stats. I mean, the, those are things that we really don't think about is that the, the brain injury uh, that because it's, it's unseen, it's like depression. Um, right. It, it's, you know, because it's unseen, we really don't discuss it. And, and it's hard for us to see the effects of it and how much that can show up in our behaviors and, and why we are responding or really reacting uh, the way we are in certain situations. Um, you know, right. with you, you got so much on your plate right now and you have a fiance when's the wedding
1: it's uh next april wow
0: congratulations yeah thank you um what what else are you looking forward to besides that wedding i I assume you're looking forward to that but 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 but, and i ask that because you know when when we're studying this kind of thing it could be so daunting and feel so heavy that you know we have to kind of create the light and make sure we're taking care of ourselves and creating things in our lives that we look forward to personally outside of work. So what are you looking forward to outside of that?
1: Um, yeah. So I am currently uh, planning a a trip home uh, to see family. Um, I try and, and see family and friends, you know, at least once every couple of months or, or a couple of times a year. And um, I, I sort of focus on that to, to get me through the, the tough times with research. And, um i'm i've got this new job starting and uh i i'm i'm really excited about that i'll be using some some new treatments to to see if we can treat people with brain injury and um yeah and i am actually pretty excited about uh about some some music uh concerts coming up um i i live in a pre- pretty great music area so i i go to a lot of concerts and um yeah i've got i've got quite a few things to look forward to
0: uh, okay and then what i so first of all i need to know what kind of music or give us like one artist or playlist that you enjoy uh and then uh and, anything that you're reading for fun or have read that you really enjoyed and would like to share
1: oh yeah so uh, um I, I i think my my repeat artist right now is, uh, Nathaniel Rateliff and the night sweats. Um, they did a really great, uh, NPR tiny desk, um, would highly recommend. So I'm they're they're more on the, the kind of country folk side. Um, I've, I've had them on repeat quite a bit, but I'm also, uh, getting back into fiction reading, uh, grad school, you know, was, was where I read, you know, for my education. And so I, I used to read a lot, but I'm just now getting back into it now that I'm out. And I'm, I'm reading through this really great uh, series. Uh, it's called the Cormoran Strike Series. It's a, a murder mystery series. Um, it's by Robert Galbraith. Uh, really enjoying that.
0: Did you say Cormoran
1: Murder? Cor- uh, yeah, it's a weird name. It's C-O-R-M-O-R-A-N, Cormoran Strike.
0: Oh, got you, got you. Yeah. Right on. Um, yeah. And then, last question I like to ask this of all my guests because always: Imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Cooper?
1: Um, I I, I think that uh, that's that's a really tough question. So I think that um, you know, what, what got me through that period was, was actually surviving another person's suicide. Um, and I know that a lot of people say, you know, people love you, you don't do it, but, but really surviving the suicide of someone else was, was really the toughest thing I had to do. And it left me with a lot of questions and I'll never have those questions answered. Um, and I, now that I've sort of got a grip on my career and my mental health and all that. I'm, I'm really a firm believer that, that nothing is bad enough that you wouldn't want to make a final decision like that over, you know, you, you have that one shot. We all have one shot. And um, I think that as bad as it may seem, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but you, you sort of have to be the person to, unfortunately, you know, um it would be great if if your family or friends could do it for you but you have to be the person to to take that initiative and and make that first reach out for for help um and it's a hard step but i think in the end it's it's um a lot more it'll benefit you a lot more and the people around you a lot more than than suicide ever will
0: and then last statement where can people find you reach out to you connect with you
1: yeah so i'm uh on twitter uh, my my handle is cooper underscore underscore hodges uh, and i'm pretty responsive on there i'm at cooper hodges on instagram um and i'm also on uh, ResearchGate research gate at cooper hodges so um would would uh, be happy to answer any questions your listeners have about brain injury
0: Thank you so much, Cooper. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling to get help or going to get help. Call the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or the million of other resources, phone numbers, chats, groups that are listed in each and every single one of the show notes. Remember, we have international phone lines. If you're in Sri Lanka, if you're in Budapest, if you're where, and if you're up there with Santa Claus, there is a hotline for you. There's somebody that you can reach out and talk to. Call a friend. Call an enemy. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. With yours truly, let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Cooper.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.